When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. This is DeRay, and we're going to pause to the people. In this episode, it's me, Kaya, Miles, and DR talking about all the news that you don't know from the past week, the news that's important with regard to race and justice. And then I sit down and talk to Samira Singari to discuss her community involvement in BLO activism in Saratoga Springs. Here we go. My advice for the week is just be honest. That you ain't got to do all this backflips and and hoops and all this stuff if you're just honest. Just be honest and hold your relationships with people of all kind. Hold people as sacred. Just be honest with people. Be honest. That's the message for this week. Family, happy new year. Happy new year. Welcome, Welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I'm D.R. Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at D.R. Ballinger. I'm Miles E. Johnson. You can find me at Feral Rapture on Twitter and Instagram. I'm Kaya Henderson, at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. And this is DeRay, at D-I-E-Y on Twitter. Uh, so we're still going into 2022, you know, obviously with traumas and things that have happened in the last few years. And one of those things is still the Maude Arbery case. So we did get a guilty verdict before... 2021 came to a close. The sentencing, though, happened just this past week. So both Travis McMichael, who is the man who shot Ahmad, and his father um, were both sentenced to life without parole. The third man that was with them is sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. So all that I can say is that you know, I hope this has you know, somehow given some comfort to Ahmad Arbery's family. You know, I think going from this case initially not even going to be prosecuted, and we talked about this on the pod before, because the DA who was involved wasn't trying to press charges. Now, with these folks being sentenced to, to life without parole, um, I think is is some semblance of, of, of progress with this particular case. So the next step is they're actually, these three men are also, they have to, they're charged federally with hate crimes. So there's also going to be a separate proceeding for that that's going to take place. So that's, um, so that's coming soon and stay tuned for that. But yeah, I mean, um, you know, racial violence isn't going away. We didn't ring in the new year getting rid of that. So, you know, just, you know, following this case closely and see what continues to happen. Any win is, 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 is is a win. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. And um, you know, because it's still the first month in a new year, it's like I, I gotta cling to optimism now. <laughs> so like I'm I'm happy to 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 and, and, and I love what you um just said about hopefully giving like peace to the family. That's what it's truly about. Because I think sometimes there's so many circumstances and cases that we forget that these are individual families, individual experiences, a whole a whole life story. And these people stuff to mourn and grieve. And hopefully this helps that process um, more. I think this is one of the tensions of being Black in America. On the one hand, 
We celebrate the fact that these men are being held accountable. And at the same time, each of us knows that this is one and that there are a whole lot of others who have gone unpunished, who have not been held accountable. And we know that this is not the last time that we're going to see something like this happen, unfortunately. But I do think that it sends an important signal in a time where there are a lot of people who still believe that they can take the law into their own hands. We also this week saw the one-year anniversary of the January 6th Capitol insurrection And I think this is an important message to send to people that, you know, law is still um, important in this land, that you don't get to just run after people and kill them. And I think that we have to be vigilant, right? The, The price of freedom is that we got to keep fighting. And so I am happy for the Aubrey family. Um, And I hope that this challenges us to keep the pressure on because, as you mentioned, Diara, that's the only thing that got us here. And, you know, these are the moments that really call into question the values around abolition or or harm reduction and this conversation about incarceration, because we know that this country's history has meant that white people have done heinous things with literally no accountability on a spectrum, not even uh, like citation accountability, just, just no accountability. And then you get this. And it is, you know, it is a real moment where people are like, life without parole probably just doesn't make sense in general. And these men should not be around other people at all. And, you know, there's so few cases where there is any accountability. Ahmad should certainly be here today. He did nothing wrong in any capacity, like not a modicum of anything wrong he did. And yet these white men, supported by other actors in the state, namely the prosecutor, decided to collude to participate in the end in his death. So uh, this was uh, an instance where the system seemed to produce an outcome. Uh, I, I always think, though, about all the cases where like, there wasn't a national uproar, all the cases where there wasn't a media storm, where people like us weren't talking about the podcast or other people talking about it in their homes. And and hopefully we can get to a place where, you know, that's what justice looks like, is where you don't need a national story for your life to be uh, honored on the front end. So there isn't a thing that we have to look for accountability for on the back end. I so rarely go first. I'm excited to go first. My news is about a false positive drug test in the New York State prison. So I saw this and let me just frame it for you know, the way, not only is incarceration just bad enough, like that is in and of itself the the worst of the worst, is that when people are incarcerated, it's like the system just comes up with these really interesting and creative ways to further ruin people's lives. And that is what happened in New York State. So New York State, uh, the Inspector General Lucy Lang, she, she issued uh, the findings of a multi-year investigation this past week where she was looking into faulty tests and change policies that were leading to spikes, a high number of people coming back saying that they were using drugs while incarcerated. Now, let me just say that the only reason this was flagged is that there were a group of activists who realized this is an issue and forced the issue to the inspector general's office. But what happened was that the state actually changed vendors for uh, the drug test. So in October 2018, they moved to a company called Microgenics, but before that, they had used uh, Siemens Healthcare di- Diagnostics for the testing products. And when they used their old system, when they used the other system, the policy required a second test to confirm a positive result. When they moved to Microgenics, not only was the test producing false positives, 
but they also removed the verification of a second, more sensitive method. So this was a urinalysis test, and it was they used it across all 52 correctional facilities starting in January 2019. And what happened? There was a spike in positives that were false positives in the end. Microgenics had internal research that showed that there was problems with the urinalysis test. And it was such that something as small as an acid pill for heartburn or a sugar substitute in coffee could produce a false positive. So all these people were being penalized. They were getting consequences, extra day in solitary, extra day in prison, all these other things because of a false positive. And microgenics knew and again, if it were not for the advocacy of groups like Worth Rises, if it were not for organizers pushing, then we would never know. So, so I brought it here because, you know, part of our work is the tension between alleviating the pain and suffering of people's lives today and dealing with the, the complete overhaul of the system. But it's these sort of things that actually that do so much damage to real people's lives in the moment, in the everyday, and like something as simple as like the drug test don't even test real drugs. The drug, drug test picking up all this other stuff. Uh, and shout out to uh, shout out to the activists and organizers for pressing this, and shout out to the inspector general for doing it their own investigation. This was just like failure on so many levels. So there was the policy failure on the Department of Corrections to continue their previous policy of double-checking when you got a a positive result. There was corporate failure on the part of Microgenics to disclose the internal research, which literally says that sweetener or an antacid pill could give you a, a positive result. It was a leadership failure on the part of the prison system when they started to see that with the new tests, we get lots more positives. Like, maybe we should check that out, said nobody, right? That is a simple leadership and management failure. And then there's the always failure to respond to the community when the community raises concerns when these people were, you know, blowing up advocacy organizations and and whatnot to ask for help combating these um, test results. Oh, and putting people in solitary confinement, because they got a, p- a positive drug test. This was this is staggering and and this is one of these things that like a couple simple decisions could have changed people's lives dramatically for the positive and they actually went the opposite direction. This is maddening. It just goes back to just you know a conversation that we continue to have around just the indignity in which the most vulnerable population is treated, incarcerated people. Um, And it reminds me, DeRay, of I heard this story over the break of Tanisha Chappelle, who was incarcerated, I think, for shoplifting in Indiana and fell ill while she was um, in jail and kept trying to get help, kept screaming for help. Hours later, they finally get the paramedics there and then she later dies at the hospital. But the video, which there is video, which is agonizing to watch, you can, she just looks so sick. And so for people to see this woman and to not recognize that she's not feeling well, that she should, that she deserves treatment, she deserves care, um, she deserves thoughtfulness, it's just, 
it's just, it's not human. It's just so wild. Um, so I think that's what this brings me to. It's just that people are just so callous and just so, you know, dismissive around incarcerated people. Oh, they test positive, false positive. Oh, whatever. Okay. To, to Kaya's point around all the different, um, all the different ways they went wrong here. And and yet, but just kind of disregard. Of course, I concur with what everybody has said. Um, and also, I think... If, if I were to add anything different to what everybody said that I agree with, is that this has to be um, something that we can add on the reason to decriminalize drug use. Um, I think that, I think about like if that was something that we really centered and something that was really being um, uh, approached, that the, the, this technology, the business, all these different circumstances wouldn't be necessary if we didn't treat people with drug problems like they were that it was a that was a criminal offense when it's really a mental health crisis and i think that this is just another symptom of um us mishandling people who are who have um drug problems and it's it's sad and 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 also i you know i'm like like how do you pay somebody back for the 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 what has happened to them mentally because of the, the situations you put them in? Like, how do you ever try to rectify that once you we when you do some certain things like that are so like when you have certain punishments that are so damaging and irreversible? Like, how do you pay them back? Don't go anywhere. More politics. The people's coming. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the back. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy 
with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. I, I, sometimes I, like, I, don't, I do not want to continue to feel like the Black celebrity Grim Reaper, but like the, it's, the, this has been a low-swinging chariot that we have been, that, like, that it might be the longest, slowest one in history. Um, but uh, a, amazing actor and just, and just Black icon, Sidney Poitier, um, has passed away. I was... Recent, we, me and my um, my partner were watching uh, his films, and I was researching and kind of digging, like, what were people saying before, you know, the the, the his death? And we found the um, the Oprah Daily article, and I just love this conversation that um, o- Oprah had with uh, with with, um, with Sydney. And then also, there's a there's a part of it that. I believe that Oprah and Sydney deal with similar critiques about their about their position in in black culture and not being black enough. And it was interesting to see them kind of go back and forth together and converse about certain things. And um, I just wanted to honor certain things that just moved me that he said um, during the interview. So when when asked about what was the expectation of of his father, he says uh, to walk to walk through my life as my own man. I see my father; he was a poor man, and I watched him do astonishing things. After the tomato business failed on Cat Island, he moved to Nassau, Nassau with no money. He moved there with um, arthritis, and I saw him hang on his dignity day by day. And it was hard because there, if you had nothing, you got no respect. Yet he never lost his dignity in his lifetime. My father never earned as much money as I spent in a week. Um, and that's another thing when. Uh, when I found out about uh, his death, is that just Diane Carroll, Harry Belafonte, Cicely Tyson, Maya Angelou, Sidney Poitier, these are people who, like, kind of, like, ring dignity in your ears. And it does feel like less that... Less that dignity is black dignity is gone, but oh that this this responsibility for displaying black dignity must be have been inherited by other people because that I, I just refuse to think that there's not some type of design in how we move on to the ancestral realm. And um that quote reminded me of that. Another one that really moved me was um him talking about Stevie Wonder, where I'm like, this should definitely be in like the Smithsonian or something <laughs> like Sidney Poitier talking about Stevie Wonder feels like a big deal take a person like Stevie Wonder who was blind from a young age where did his gifts come from his mother they come they came from her and it's conceivable that five ten or twenty generations ago there was someone with an extraordinary gift in Stevie's family but the external circumstances of that person's life were such that they had never gave rise to that gifts blossoming Oprah responds because it takes a combination of forces to bring out gifts Sidney says exactly one day it happens a kid like Stevie is walking through a living room and there's a piano and he hears a note and it becomes the light. So the journey is not one generation, each of us in the accumulated effort unfolding. Uh, then he goes on to say, uh, we should not limit it to two generations. I have to accept that my contribution to the man that I have become was a small one. That gift made to my mother, which manifested in me, could have been lying in dormancy across generations. Because let me tell you, my dear, there is something about you that didn't just happen when your father's sperm hit your mother's egg. The sperm and egg carry a history that includes generations you don't know. And there was something really comforting about hearing um, Sydney talk about generations and ancestors and and not just considering Black life as one, you know, physical Black life, but also this kind of 
cell in the continuum of Black history and, and Black culture. And there was something really comforting about knowing that he had that um, perspective while living and makes the his transition even that much um, more celebratory and more um, something to like honor than something to mourn because you know that he had that perspective that he wouldn't want you to um, be mourning and be sad. He will want you to think about, okay, what is my work to do now that th- this cell has went into this next phase? Where where am I being called to go this phase? And I and and I, you know, we're lo- we're losing some hard hitters <laughs> um, in in. And I think that we can go into grief collectively over our cultural icons, but I think um, an even more courageous thing to do is kind of stand up in the in the dignity and what we're inheriting because of the work um, that these people have done in our own individual ways, big and small. One of the things that struck me, really struck me about this article was um, him talking about his growing up experiences and how he when he was living in the Bahamas on Cat Island um, until he was 15, he was free. There were, the expectations were high. He was able to do whatever he wanted to do. And he didn't really understand Blackness as a construct because there were only two white people on Cat Island, the doctor and the shopkeeper's daughter, and they were just people and everybody was just people. And he got the shock of his life then when he came to Miami to live with his his older brother. And he said something that literally, it just, I mean, it struck my heart. He says, I'm a 15-year-old kid and who I am is really terrific. The me that I've been for 15 years, I like that me. That's a free me. I can't adjust to being a restricted me. And to have a 15-year-old who first believes themselves to be terrific is a revolution in and of itself. To have a 15-year-old who likes themselves that way, who recognizes the freedom and who makes a decision at 15 that they're not going to compromise that freedom. And then we see that decision playing out over the course of his career from the from the roles that he chose to the way that he carried himself with the press. Um, this is my life's work. This is what I want to make sure that every single one of our 15-year-olds sees themselves as really terrific, understands that they come from a legacy that includes Sidney Poitier and the generations before him, um, and that they can be free in America in a way that Sidney was. And I think the the collective mourning, I was like, well, you know, I was a little surprised at first. You know, Sydney was 94. He had a good run. And I'm like, why are people <laughs> like, well, <laughs> 94 is a good run, right? But I think what the the grief is, is that, as you said, Miles, this was dignity personified for us. This was barrier breaking. This was, you know, if we can see it, we can be it. And this was the best of character, I think, um, the best, one of the best examples of character. And so I feel sad, um, but I am appreciative of the opportunity upon this great man's death to reflect on the lessons that we can glean from the example that he set. Um, Ms. Kai, I love that. I love that everything that you said, um, that was one of my favorite parts. And I love that he came to those conclusions via silence. 
And it was almost like in my head, I was like, oh, that was his natural state was to love himself. And he was gifted 15 years of silence and quietude and to be able to like really honor and have a relationship with that natural state of, of appreciation for himself that that 15 years made him so rock solid that he was able to go on and win the Academy Awards and do the great work that he's been able to do and, and, and et cetera, et cetera. But it, I, I just love the idea where it's like, no, like we're, we, we naturally love ourselves. And if we let that grow, we can, we can, we can cling to it and be in, 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 be inconquerable. I will say I loved, um, this isn't what I'll talk about the most, but I, I did love all the, the back and forth between him and Denzel and, and the way like, they loved each other and the way that, in that beautiful moment where Sydney is like, he is, he is like the culmination of all the things I worked for. Like, that's just so beautiful. But what I wanted to say is that I am really disillusioned by celebrity today and sort of just like, okay, we know you can sing and dance and we know you can throw balls in the air and catch them and you can throw them in metal, metal circles. And, but what are you doing for the people? And, and it is all of the people in their homes and, in you know, in their communities with not a lot of resources that make you famous. It is it is their love, it is our love, it is our care that make any of your work possible or relevant. And yet your responsibility to us, to them, feels really nil. And then there's somebody like Sidney Poitier. So the story that I'll recount is in the Freedom Summer of um, 1964. You know it, obviously, because of the Freedom Rides and the three civil rights activists who were who were killed, um, Andrew Goodman, Mickey Schwerner, and James Cheney during that moment. But you might not know is that they were running into real financial troubles and they needed more money to keep that summer going. And they needed about $50,000. James Foreman, who was helping to run SNCC at the time, calls Belafonte, Belafonte and Portier get together and they develop a plan to deliver the $70,000 that they raised to the freedom right to the freedom summer folks how do they do it though they have to get on a plane they have to get into town and while, when they land it is the kkk is ready there's a there's a car that immediately rams their car they are driving and it's Belafonte Poitier and two snick folks uh, and they are driving and then a group of snick cars come and, and put a protective covering like a convoy almost around their car, but they still don't know if somebody's going to come out and shoot them or if more uh, more cars are going to come. The highway patrol was up and ready uh, to arrest all of them for speeding so that the money would not get. They couldn't wire the money because that would obviously uh, trigger a process. White banks wouldn't take the money. And then they had to sleep in somebody's house in town and uh, people were watching guard in the house they were in. And Portier has this beautiful line when he he walks into the room where they make it, they deliver the money. They walk into the room with all the SNCC folks because the money finally got there. They can continue Freedom Summer. And Portier says, I'm, I'm 37 years old. I've been a lonely man all my life because I have not found love, but this room is overflowing in it. And you're just like, you know, like black, the way black people, especially black people, struggle to love each other is just so different. And I that is my story too from St. Louis, but but they did it, and then they got snuck out of Greenwood. Um, you know, a day or two later, but they were willing to put it all on the line. Two of the most famous black people to live in that moment got themselves. They didn't call somebody. They didn't hire somebody to deliver the money. They didn't pay somebody. to. They got their bodies on the line and were like, if y'all going to mess with somebody, it'll be us and we will make sure this is a crisis for every... I mean, 
if there is not a role for celeb, that's it. They did it. And where are those people in this moment? I don't know. But <laughs> you better preach. You better preach. Fortier, he the rubber met the road there. Because mm. in the spirit of Sidney Portier, in the if you see it, you can be it. And and Oprah's the whole premise of the article is Oprah seeing Sydney on TV getting an Academy Award and knowing in that moment that she could be that. Um, and in the spirit of we are more than just Negroes, if there's a clip running around of um, Portier res- at taking questions at a press conference and they're asking him all of these questions about things happening that have to do with blackness. And at some point he says, I want to ask you a question. Why are you asking? Why are you specializing in sensationalism and negativity? And when I am, I am a man, I am an American, I am an artist, I am a whatever. And you choose to only ask me questions essentially about my blackness is what he's saying. And, um, and in that spirit, I bring to you an article from the Washington Post about the first all-Black team of climbers heading to Mount Everest. And I bring this to the pod because I want our kids, like little Oprah sitting on a linoleum tile, to see something different so that they can be something different. And I want our listeners to know that we are more than just the pathologies that beset our communities. We are mountain climbers. We are summiters. Y'all, come on with me in this new year. We are (laughs) mountain climbers. And so this May, um, a team of nine highly qualified, says the article, highly qualified. I like that. A team of nine highly qualified Black climbers will be the first all-Black team to reach the summit of Mount Everest, which is the tallest peak in the world. Um, The team is led by Philip Henderson, who is not my cousin, although he probably is somewhere along the line. Um, And the group is called Full Circle Everest Expedition. They don't just want to summit Everest, but they want to bring diversity and change to the outdoors and the mountaineering industries. Um, These climbers hope that they can change the narrative uh, by creating stories that show that this can be done. Um, And I love the diversity of the team. So um, the team members include outdoor educators, the owner of a climbing gym, a high school teacher, shout out to the teachers, um, doing all the things, a North Face sponsored sports ambassador, a sociology professor, and a marine instrumentation and computer specialist. Now, just the different, come on, exactly. Not black people, these are. These are black people, I'm just reminding you. Like, just the diversity of of their occupations is interesting. Um, They also range in age from 25 to 58. And as the auntie that I'm often reminded that I am, um, old people can, or older people, middle-aged, middle-aged, seasoned people can climb Mount Everest. Go ahead, y'all. There are people with PhDs in environmental and science fields. There are people who have already summited Kilimanjaro in Tanzania and Denali in Alaska. And all of this is just giving me all the feels. Um, It's expensive. The cost is about $100,000 per person to make the climb. And they are supported by a bunch of different mountaineering brands, but they are still seeking donations. And so if you you have it upon your heart and want to support Black mountaineering, check out Full Full, Full Circle Everest Expedition. Um, this is historical, y'all, because the first um, pers- first people 
to Summit Everest um, are widely believed to be Edmund Hillary from New Zealand and his Sherpa, Tenzing Norgay. Um, They were the first folks to do it 70 years ago. And since then, only about 10,000 other people have done it, but only a handful of them have been Black and only one Black American. Most of the climbers who climb Everest Um, are white male climbers, many from the British Empire that ruled over India and the Himalayas. But full circle, Everest expedition is about to change all of that. So let us cheer and celebrate these nine intrepid, Black, highly qualified um, climbers who are... Loves highly (laughs) highly qualified... Puts in Twitter bio, highly qualified. Who are showing our young people that they can be something different, who are busting up the colonized outdoors industry and bringing Black excellence to the party. Yeah. Mm. It's super beautiful. And then even what I was thinking about, because I know that, you know, we kind of romanticize like the the young Oprah looking at you know and and the the older or you know the older Sydney getting the Academy Award and stuff and then but what rang true to me when you were um we're talking is that we're always so in, in my I'm about to be 31 in March and right now I'm transitioning into art, film, music, these all these different scary things that are not media and writing. And um, these type of stories give me hope, you know? And I think that the part of the human life is always getting over one mountain and reaching the summit and going to another one and looking up. And these stories, even though they're very literal, it's about a, liter- it's about a literal expedition. To me, you, 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 you can't, I, I get why you look at Muhammad Ali and you get that feeling of champion. The reason why we love Serena Williams, even if we do not give a flying, you, you know what, about tennis, we just love seeing somebody win is because we're usually in our own life being called to those our own individual expeditions um, to, to to find new and higher summits. And that's why this like story inspired me because I will not be touching no mountain. I will, that won't be happening. And I'm okay with that. I'm at peace with that decision that that won't be happening for me, but I love seeing somebody else have that goal and do it. <laughs> yeah. The only thing I'll say is, um, you know, we were probably the original climbers. We're just people rediscovering black climbers in this moment. But I think about all these sports stuff. I, I love the access. I love, I hope these people knock it out of the water. I hope that they are the beginning of the second wave of, of people having the tools and resources. Cause you know, part of it is not that the skill of climbing all of us grew up around a whole lot of people who was climbing stuff. They had no business climbing and were doing it in the most incredible ways when they were three years old, right? So we know some climbers. How to get to the mall. Right, <laughs> right. You're like, why are they on the roof? You're like, get off the roof. Come on. But the thing is, is at a point, it's like you need the tools and resources. Like, And, and Kai hi- highlighted this. It is not, the, the skill of climbing is really just not enough at a certain point. It's do you have the the clothes and the whatever goes on your feet or the food that is for like that can sustain you out there because you can't have no rice and beans out there like that like you get at the house you know like you know, how do you have the, the resources and, and tools and skill um the resources and tools not just the skill and i think that that actually is so much of the sports conversation the access conversation people make it a skill conversation black people have always had the skills and we had the resources and tools is really what we have not had that has limited people I agree with everything that's been said, wholeheartedly, obviously. 
What I'm doing now, though, is getting some merch because these folks have the cutest merch. So I'm going to order me a little sweatshirt and be walking around. When some people ask me about Full Circle Expedition, I'll be able to tell them. Check them out, y'all. All right, y'all. My news today is about Lonnie Guineer. So I happened to actually rewatch the Paulie Murray documentary earlier this week. Um, and thinking about Paulie Murray, thinking about Lonnie Guineer, and just like the pioneering scholarship of these humans, um, it just makes me so proud. Now, it does um, also make me sad that not more people know about these extraordinary humans. Um, Pauli Murray, if you don't know, you can watch a documentary on Pauli. Pauli's also written books and, you know, so many legal essays, et cetera, et cetera. But she's been instrumental in, in civil rights in terms of gender, gender discrimination. And also her scholarship has also impacted um, gaining rights for the LGBTQ community as well. Um, but I've talked about Lonnie Grenier before and um, Lonnie Grenier, Patricia J. Williams, Kimberly Crenshaw, and really any, all, you know, all the Black women, Black folks standing on the shoulders of folks like Constance Baker Motley, who if you don't know about Constance Baker Motley, you need to Google her too. You know, I, I got to know all of these names really when I was studying Black studies and then when I went on to law school when I thought I was going to be a critical race um, scholar. But, you know, they they have always been my North Star. And it's been so critical for us to understand that the culture and the society that we have now, even as with much work to do as we have to do, they have helped to shape it, like, instrumentally. Um, and so to know Lonnie Grenier is to know about her scholarship on voting rights. And, you know, and obviously, she's Lonnie Grenier is just this accomplished person. She's the first Black tenured woman at Harvard Law School. She was at the Legal Defense Fund for years and fought a bunch of court battles where she won the rights um, for folks of color. So that's long, um, long and um, what, what, Kai, what did we just say? She's, she's highly qualified. She's highly qualified. But I really wanted to just hone in on her work on voting rights because Lonnie was so ahead of her time. And so Lonnie Grenier really champion what's called cumulative voting. And so we actually have cumulative voting now in New York City. Our last mayoral election, we had cumulative voting. And cumulative voting means that, let's say, if you were, you know, if you if there were four Congress people that were running in a particular district, you would get four votes. And you could either use all those four votes on one person or you can distribute your votes equally. However you wanted to do with those four votes, you could do with those four votes. Now, this is kind of groundbreaking, a, a different way to think about our election system because right now districts are drawn up to either have a whole bunch of folks of color in them and so they can only have, they can vote for that candidate and you know maybe that candidate is a candidate of color, but the districts that, they're, that are on either side of them, they have no say. And obviously like all of those resources are, are impacting all of those people. So I just, I think with Lonnie Grenier, I think it's, it's just it's so consequential because this is someone who actually wanted to reimagine our election system and makes sense because our election system and our democracy obviously was originated in the 18th century. So why would we be using a system that one is so old, but also 
wasn't meant to be for a multiracial society, right? And so I think it's just so interesting when you really start to think about, okay, instead of us just trying to like prod and push and dent in the current system we have now, what if we actually just thought about the society we had now and the needs of those citizens and created a structure, created a system that basically held held the held the rights of those of those citizens and really allowed them to use their voice in elections. So I'll get off my soapbox, but if you can really look into her work because it's just incredible. And when we're in this moment now, when voting rights is such a critical issue and we're still waiting for the Senate to pass the John Lewis Act um, and the the Voter Freedom Act, you know, or Freedom to Vote Act rather, it's just I don't, you know, it's almost sort of full circle moment here as well with 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 Lonnie Grenier and her passing and her life's work. So I just wanted to bring her up because she's meant so much to me in both the development of who I am as 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 a black woman, but also as an attorney. And so, yeah, I, I just wanted to to hold her up and say her name and hold space for her. And the last thing I'll say about her is President Clinton did some effed up stuff to her. He basically nominated her and then withdrew her nomination on some BS. You can look into that, too, because it was ridiculous. But, you know, they, that's all I got to say about that. I, I will jump in and pick up on that thread because when because when that thing went down, I had just graduated from college. We were so excited to see a black woman nominated by what we then thought was our first black president. Um, and we watched this really terrible character assassination go down. And we watched perhaps one of the, what I would consider one of the like greatest acts of political cowardice um, and abandonment of our community with Bill Clinton not standing by her or standing up for her. And that said a lot to me. It's, I think that was the, that abandonment of her, of her nomination made me very at a at a, a formative age i was 23 or so at the time made me realize that everybody who stands with us ain't standing for us um and you know she was an a complete the, the article the the times obituary calls her an unorthodox thinker about whether america's legal institutions needed to change to to further change further to realize democracy and the truth of the matter is she was thinking way ahead of her time. All of the questions that we are currently dealing with around voting rights, around gerrymandering, around, you know, voter marginalization, these are the things that she was talking about in the 80s and the 90s, and she was trying to figure out systemic solutions to them. And those things were radical, and she was penalized for it. She wasn't even penalized for it because she was wrong or because it was super crazy. In fact, the Republicans who opposed her said very clearly that this campaign against her was a, medical, a matter of political opportunity. Bill Clinton hadn't, ha- hadn't expended any political capital yet around voting and voting rights. The Republicans were pissed off about Supreme Court justice nominations, um, Bork and Thomas, and they needed some get back. And who do you use to get the get back is the Black woman legal scholar. And so she, you know, I think what is terrible is that, you know, a lot of the 
the things that we, a lot of the strategies that we are now employing, as you mentioned, Diara, are remedies to the problems that she raised and and solutions that she championed. And she was penalized and punished for that because folks didn't stand with her. Um, It is heartbreaking to me to think that at 73, she died of Alzheimer's disease because that brain was you know, a, a genius and and a visionary and before her time. And so I thank you for bringing this to the pod. Yeah, short and sweet. I just think it's, it's like, fascinating that the, uh, the, the person who uh, was oppressed by, like, the, the, like, racist political technology was also the same person tasked with revolutionizing it and changing it for forever. And that's just uh, uh, astonishing. I'm always really um, just, just impressed by like the, the the tasks that are on Black people's lives to be given something and then also be not just surviving it or thriving through it, but then also creating the technology and the ideas in order to transform it. And it's inspiring. And um, thank you all for bringing it to the podcast. It, it, it lifted me and expanded what, what I knew. You know, Lana Guinea has this quote that I love. It's so true. I want to get it like plastered on everybody's everything. Poor Black people are the throwaway people, and we pathologize them in order to justify our disregard. Lonnie, you said it. That without poor Black people, this whole shebang ain't shebanging no more. And people participate in the pathology, people participate in blaming poor Black people for their, for the problems that we face and all these things as a way to rationalize our disinvestment and our lack of urgency and our lack of responsibility and a lot of celebrities here that like, it's a, you know, I worked hard, you should work hard. Like we do all of these things to pathologize black people because black people, poor black people are the throwaway people. But if not for poor black people, this, this, this thing ain't banging, this thing ain't banging. And shout out to Lana Guinea for using her position and privilege and power not only to fight for that, but but to name it. Like, you know, because there's so many people who in the not naming it, that's a way that they justify their disregard. Like that's another way that it happens is by acting like they just don't understand. They don't know. They don't see it. And it's like, you know what? That ain't it. But shout out to Lana Guinea, a hero and a titan. And, you know, the beautiful thing about her legacy is that she inspired so many people like the DRs, so many people, I think, so many people who saw themselves in a field that had been only aspirational before and she made it real. And here we go, my conversation with Samira Singari. She's the community organizer and Black Lives Matter activist in Saratoga Springs, a city in New York State. Her work centers youth empowerment, community health and wellness, equity and inclusion, and a host of other things. And now what's happening is that there are a group of activists who are being targeted by the Saratoga Springs Police Department because of their peaceful protests and because of their advocacy. And I wanted to talk to Samir to learn more about it. She and I spoke about the hardship that she and her family have faced in the journey for justice for Daryl Mount and so many others. Hear our conversation and see how this work impacts activists across the country day in and day out. Here we go. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. With my busy life, I use shipped same-day delivery to keep up. When I need a jar of extra creamy peanut butter delivered, I know my personal shopper Amber will come through. And if it's not on the shelf, she asks them to check the bag. Shipped. Delight in every delivery. Learn more at shipped.com. One. 
two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious. Samira, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thanks so much for having me. Now, I know you because you are an activist who is still working in community, uh, fighting against police violence, and in some ways, you have been targeted by the state. But can you start by telling us, what was your path to activism? How did you, how did you start to identify as an activist or an organizer, or is that how you identify at all? What was your journey to this space? So, first of all, um, I am a non-binary femme, so um, my pronouns are she, they. Um, and I started off coming into this movement um, with my brother. Uh, you know, um, this uh, the George Floyd uh, murder was a big turning point. So my brother and I started in Clifton Park, where we live, which is in Saratoga County. And we went to our high school at Shenandoah. And we focused on um, LGBTQIA plus students and BPOC students who have gone through abuse and have gone through racism, gaslighting, um, and we took it to the streets. Um, and after that, we went to school board meetings. And, you know, I, my brother and I went to many um, protests in the capital region in New York. Um, there was a huge protest in Albany where there's about, you know, 7,000 people. There's a protest in Troy where there's about 15,000 people. Um, following that, my brother and I joined a group uh, called All of Us where I met a lot of amazing people. And later on, we formed our group called Saratoga Black Lives Matter um, where uh, some of the people in that group uh, branched off. And, you know, we... We just fight for, um, you know, justice and what's right and for people that look like us, basically. And what are those fights? Like, what are what are the issues that are in your community? And remind everybody where you are again, like, what, what city, what town, what state, like, so they can place it. So, yeah, we're in upstate New York. Uh, I live in Clifton Park, which is in Saratoga County. And, um, you know, this is the capital region. And, you know, Saratoga Black Lives Matter is one of um, the main people who are doing a lot of these things. Uh, our biggest thing is um, getting justice for Daryl Mount. Daryl Mount was a 21-year-old black boy who was chased into an alley in Saratoga Springs in 2013. Um, and, you know, there was no, there's no video, there's no... There's no recording of the encounter, and Saratoga Police Department said that he fell from scaffolding. Daryl had injuries to his face on one side, um, like it was a beating, uh, like he, it was blunt force trauma. Uh, he had no broken bones, and he was actually handcuffed on the scene um, while he was unconscious. Um the chief of police at the time lied and said that there was no investigation. And, you know, so our first thing for Daryl Mount is um, having the DA cited for not doing an investigation, having SSPD cited for 
um, not having a for not having an investigation, having the jury cited for having no investigation. We want the officers to be fired and to never be policed again. And that is what justice looks like for um, that family right now, uh, for the Mount family. Uh, we also fight for equity and inclusion in Saratoga County and Saratoga because it is mostly uh, white people and, you know, but there are also black and BPOC individuals that live here that don't feel welcome. Um, you know, another demand is demilitarizing the Saratoga County Sheriff's. They have millions and millions of dollars um, that it's, that's donated by the federal government, and they bring MRAP vehicles to our protests, especially the vigil that we have for Daryl Mott every year. Um, and there's actually a an incident where um, the sheriffs came out on July 30th on 2020 during a Back the Blue rally. Uh, there's a counter-protest with BLM, and uh, the sheriff shot pepper bullets at BLM protesters and arrested a 15-, 16-, 17-year-old um, uh, children. So um, there's still been no justice for that. Um, you know, we also want the, all the charges to be dropped from July 14th from when we were arrested as well as September 7th. Um, and, you know, we just simply want accountability and transparency uh, from SSPD, especially with a, a civilian review board with subpoena power, which is something that we've been fighting for uh, in Sarasota Springs. So let's back up. What's going on with the Daryl Mount case? Like, what is, when was it, and, and what has been the fallout? So Daryl, this all happened in 2013, and the family has been in litigation for the past eight years. Uh, like I said before, the chief at the time lied and said that there was no investigation and that he misled the media when he said that there was an investigation uh, and lied. Um, I mean, this whole time, uh, Daryl's family has just been looking for answers, you know, um, and that's all that we're trying to do. Uh, it, it, it's sad that not a lot of people know who Daryl is and, uh, you know, we, we kind of say that Daryl is our George Floyd, you know, um, he is someone that could still be here right now. And, you know, um, a lot of the things that went happened when during the encounter, uh, you could listen to the tape. You can watch some of the tapes uh, leading up to the chase. Um, you know, he was accused of smashing his girlfriend's head into the wall at a bar when um, they were going out. They were going out uh, to have fun, you know what I mean? Um, this this was later denounced by his girlfriend at the time. And, you know, a lot of times people, people talk about Daryl and they say, you know, why did he run or he deserved what he got? But, you know, our whole thing is even if he ran, that doesn't mean he deserved to die. And at the end of the day, you know, even if, even if nothing did happen, there still is not accountability and transparency because we don't, we don't know, you know, um, the SSPD is clearly hiding a lot of things. And at the same time, these, these officers that were there when this happened to Daryl are still working on the force. And there's still the same ones that come to our city council meetings. There's still the same ones that come to our protests. Um, there's still the same ones that SSPD chooses to have interaction with us. Um, so, you know, that's a big thing. Uh, that's a big, that's a big problem. And, uh, that we have, um, you know, with, uh, SSPD and accountability and transparency. Now, I, I believe I read it correctly that 
that you all are being targeted by the police department. Can you explain that to us? Yeah, so um, obviously around the country we've seen BLM has been you know, looked at as a terrorist or um, bad people. Uh, on September 7th, BLM activists were arrested on warrants for misdemeanors and violations two months after a protest. <laughs> um, this was after a peaceful protest when a week before uh, the assistant chief said that he would use his 130 years of family power to end our narrative. And our narrative being that we want justice for Daryl, we want equity and inclusion, and we want accountability and transparency. Um, Two of the charges that one of our leaders are facing, which is Lexis Figueroa, who is a very loud and outspoken black man in our group, uh, he's facing two charges of obstruction of governmental administration for speaking at a city council meeting and grabbing his tripod. Um, in these like situations, you could see a lot, a lot, a lot of police, a heavy police presence. Um, in the videos we have, they're swarming him. They're swarming his sister, who is another leader in our group, Chandler, um, to tell them to stop talking while a room full of other white people are talking. There's another instance at a city council meeting two weeks or a month ago almost where um, – you know, white individuals came to a city council meeting for public comment and they broke the rules and were allowed to do a second public comment. And, you know, Lexis Figueroa is still facing two charges of obstruction of governmental property for breaking those exact rules. Um, and not just, it should be noted that those charges were, those obstruction charges were written the day that um, our, th those obstruction charges were written the day that Lex was arrested. Um, you know, they, Saratoga, Saratoga Springs Police Department still has Lex's phone uh, off of a warrant for disorderly conduct after, and it's been two months. Um, you know, uh, it's clear that these are like fear-mongering tactics. And, you know, these these charges could have been issued to us, not by warrants, but by summons. I've never heard of a judge that has signed a warrant for disorderly conduct or unlawful imprisonment, which is one of the charges that my younger brother is facing and many other people for supposedly blocking a car during a protest. Um, I mean, I can tell you, we've all been to protests in Rochester and this nation's capital all over the place, uh, Louisville, and none of us have ever gotten a disorderly conduct charge or anything while, you know, protesting for our rights. And it's, it's clear because we have instances where there was a Republican who was trying to run for city council in Saratoga Springs. She's being investigated for election fraud, and she was allowed to turn herself in, and she is a white individual. Um, so we can see the bias. Uh, we can see... Uh, we can see where, um, you know, this plays in. What can people do to, to help out? Is there anything that, you know, listeners, they, they hear you, they're like, okay, Daryl Mel, okay, protest is being targeted. What can people do to support? Mm -hmm. um, well, first, they can call the Saratoga DA and tell them to drop the charges on BLM activists and BLM protesters. Um, they can follow us at Saratoga BLM on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for updates. They can also um, contact the AG 
and continued to tell her um, to investigate. Actually, no, scratch that, because the AG has already confirmed that she is investigating into Saratoga Springs. Uh, the Civil Rights uh, Department filed violations of civil rights um, against Saratoga Police Department. So, um, you know, uh, that's a big step for us as well. Cool. And what's the best way to stay up to date with what you're doing? Yeah, um, like I said, you can follow us uh, at Saratoga BLM on Instagram. Um, you can also follow myself at Samira Sangari um, on Instagram and Twitter. Boom. Are there any other parts of the story that we missed with what's going on in Saratoga Springs? I think I just wanted to add that we have a Saratoga free fridge that is fully stocked um, and a pantry that people can take uh, what they need with no questions. Oh, one thing is that, uh, I mean, obviously Saratoga Springs sees that um, their elected officials are not doing what they're supposed to be doing because um, we had a whole election here um, in November, obviously, and uh, the Democrats took four seats um, for the city council. And, you know, these, these people are already people that we've had conversations with. They're people that have actually talked to us like humans. You know, um, we're, we're obviously still going to be a thorn in their side and, you know, um, promoting uh, our, our demands and our ideas and demanding a seat at the table. But, um, you know, these are people that have already talked about Daryl Mao and getting and actually saying that we will have an investigation. Um, the public safety commissioner has already said that he's going to be putting in a policy about not having not having police uh, go out on warrants for things that aren't misdemeanors and that or that aren't felonies, um, you know, basically saying that you can't just go out for on a warrant for disorderly conduct. Um, or like any type of violation or misdemeanor, um, because it's, it should be reminded that, you know, that's not safe for people like us. Um, it's, it's very scary uh, because of the fact that, um, you know, when I found out that Lex got picked up by the sheriff, um, when, I got, when I found out that Lex got picked up on a warrant uh, while he was driving on his way to his criminology class, um, for criminal justice, we all went to the station and, you know, the sheriff, not SSPD, the sheriff told us that we had to come inside. They didn't tell us we were under arrest. They didn't tell us why. Um, these are things that are not only scary, but, I mean, they're fear tactics. Uh, there are two questions, actually. So the first is, um, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Hmm, a piece of advice. I would say um, using my, don't forget to use your voice. Don't forget to speak up. Uh, that's something that definitely drove me to this movement. You know, there are times where you think that you shouldn't say something or you shouldn't speak up or you shouldn't step up. Um, and those are the times in the past that I wish I stepped up the most. People don't realize how important your voice is. Even as scary as, as it can be, your voice is the most powerful thing that that you have and it's the most powerful weapon that that you can have. Yep. So what do you say to the people who have done it all? They are like, we emailed, voted, protested, stood in the middle of the street. We testified. We did all the things. We read the books. We went to the talks. And the world has not yet changed to be the world that they wanted it to be. What do you say to those people, the people losing hope? I say not only keep going, but invest in your youth. 
that's also a big thing that um, we have been we have been looking at as well. You know, we have a mentorship program that we also are going to be putting into the schools because, you know, our youth is what drives us. Our youth is what gives us new ideas. Our youth is what challenges us. Um, you know, I, I know I can speak for my group when I say that we always wish we had someone like us when we were younger. Um, you know, a lot of our group is very young, but we always look to the people that are younger than us, the people that, that have found their voices before we even did, because that is courage, that's bravery, and that is what actually gives me chills and what's giving me chills right now. My hairs are standing up because literally just speaking about, speaking about the children, speaking about the youth, and, you know, just putting our power into them and, and uplifting them and while uplifting us at the same time. Well, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. We can sit here in front of the pod. I can't wait to have you back. Yay! Oh my God, I did it! <laughs> Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning into Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we will see you next week. Pod Save the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by AJ Moultre and mixed by Charlotte Lands. Executive produced by me and special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Miles Johnson. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding right your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader Psst. Hey, it's me, your barista. So you know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Yeah, well, I might be putting myself out of a job by telling you this, but now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. With three new foaming flavors, French vanilla, sweet and creamy, and caramel macchiato, who could blame you if you stopped coming in altogether? Yeah, it's that foaming delicious. You're welcome. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer, now in stores. It's foaming delicious. 